Good morning. It's good to see everybody today. I'm glad to be here. And it was just last week, it was a week ago today, uh, that we celebrated Christmas. Many of us gathered with family and friends, and we shared meals and exchanged gifts. There were big smiles, warm hearts that filled the room as we greeted each other with hearty declarations. Merry Christmas! Visions of sugar plums might have danced in our heads, and no doubt there were visions of that blessed manger scene as well. There, surrounded by lowing cattle, and his smiling mother and father, lay the sweet baby Jesus in a manger, the newborn king. I can think of few things greater than this to celebrate. And I know I'm not the only one who thinks this way. The idea that Christmas is something to celebrate, it permeates our culture. It's in our movies, it's in our TV shows, it's part of our news coverage. It seems that even secular aspects of our culture identify December, at least, as a special time. How often do you hear people talk about the Christmas spirit? When they talk about the... Uh, the need for people to be extra kind and extra generous, and especially true if snow is falling so gently from the sky. These warm and fuzzy feelings and sentimentality, uh, it's enough to even make the Grinch's heart grow three times bigger when he hears the Who's singing down in Whoville. Now, I do think that there's a lot of good in all of this. Generosity is a good thing. Personal transformation, like what happens with the Grinch, can be a good thing. Sharing gifts, being kind, setting Advent or Christmas apart from the rest of the year is something special. In my book, these are all good things. But this sentiment comes at a pretty sharp contrast to the gospel reading that we heard today. In today's text, the Magi are key players. And now sometimes the Magi do make the cut into our nativity scenes. Uh, but I hardly ever see anything that alludes to Herod. The Magi, or the three kings, or the astrologers, whatever we want to call them, their role in many of our memories is simply to come from afar and shower baby Jesus with gifts and get out. But if Herod were to show up in our recollection of the meaning of Christmas, then we might lose these warm and fuzzy feelings that we so deeply cherish. But our gospel reading today is a far greater part of the Christmas story than any lowing cattle, any drummer drumming, or any painless and romanticized version of childbirth that we can muster. The text that we read, it comes after the Magi and Herod have an exchange of their own. The first part of Matthew 2 says that the Magi arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? Because they saw his star from afar and have come to worship him. Word eventually gets to Herod that a few foreigners are asking about this newly born Jewish king, and it disturbs him. And it disturbs those who share in his political power. So he calls his team of religious experts and asks them where the Messiah was to be born, and he, they tell him Bethlehem. It's 
So then Herod, in secret, calls the Magi to meet with him and then tell him the whereabouts of this newborn king as they leave. So off the Magi go, and they do find Jesus, and they do give their gifts, and they do worship the newborn. But they don't return to Herod because they were warned in a dream. And this is where our gospel reading picks up. The terrible events that transpire in this text give us a clear explanation, a clear example of why we so desperately need Jesus. Herod, the political, pe- the political leader of the Jewish people, feels that his power is being threatened by a baby and then is subsequently humiliated by the Magi when they don't tell him exactly where this child is. His next course of action is to do exactly what Pharaoh did when he thought that his power was being threatened. He launched the execution of children. He slaughtered the innocent because he thought it would keep him in control. Now this Herod was known for being especially paranoid. He was known for doing whatever he needed to do to keep his control, to keep his power. He even went as far as to murder his own wife because he saw her as a threat. He had a willingness to kill. And he used people's fear of death to keep himself in charge. Now this wasn't the first time, and it certainly hasn't been the last time, that state-sponsored killings like this have happened. Now, Jesus was born in a territory of the Roman Empire that was being ruled by Caesar Augustus. The Roman military had spread its influence and control all across Europe, across northern Africa, and into parts of what today we call the Middle East. It was a time of relative peace and security within that empire. And some refer to it as Pax Romana or Pax Augusta, which is a Latin term for peace of the Romans or peace of Augustus. But this peace was not maintained peacefully. It was maintained through brutality. It was maintained through executions. It was maintained through the effective and efficient devices known as crucifixes whenever there was a hint of rebellion or disorder. For those whom it benefited, it was fully appreciated. At least one Roman is known to say that Augustus was a savior, that Augustus was a god, and that when he was born, he brought with him the euangelion, That word, euangelion, it's a popular one in the Greek New Testament. Perhaps you've heard it. It's the word for gospel. The gospel of Augustus is to nail enemies to the cross and let fear of death keep order. 
This attitude continues today. Dictators use chemical weapons on their own people to keep their status. Developed countries keep stockpiles of atomic weapons, and their leaders openly provoke arms races. Decades ago, this line of thinking was called mutually assured destruction. Some political scientists have updated the term Pax Augusta to Pax Atomica, and they argue that the proliferation of atomic weapons keeps the peace because major players would not unleash the kind of nuclear holocaust and certain death that they would bring upon themselves if they're ever used again. Fear of death is still the modus operandi for many of the world's powerful, and it's even seen as a good thing. But in Jesus, there is no fear of death. The euangelion of Jesus Christ is far different from that of Caesar. The God through whom and for whom everything was created chooses not to keep his people trembling for their lives. The God who plucked his people out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, frees them from being slaves to death. And he does this not through military might, not through wanton violence, not through the atrocities that are becoming so routine, but through the incarnation. He chooses to reestablish right order in creation by being born as a human and to be cared for by human parents. Now, I stand here today the father of a five-month-old, and there are times when I wonder why God has placed this child in my care. It seems too much for me to bear sometimes. Don't tell Maple. Um, and I can't imagine what it would have been like to do this for God incarnate. But Jesus was birthed into the world the same way as everyone in this room. Throughout his life, he endures everything that it means to be human, the good and the bad. He chooses not to be born among the ruling class or among the religious or social elites, but to an unwed mother and father who then need to flee to Egypt just before Herod slaughters the innocent. One thing that I find interesting about how Matthew tells this story is that he makes reference to Herod's death three times in the matter of just a few short verses. It is as if he wants his readers to pick up that even though Herod exercised his might through the fear of death, he himself remains death's slave. Whereas Jesus chooses to be killed and in so doing saves all who follow him, Herod chose to kill, and in so doing, remained unable to save even himself. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? That while powerful people sometimes choose to kill, the most powerful being that could ever exist chooses instead to be killed. The immortal God chose to be killed by the very people whom he created. 
But not only does he choose to be killed, his dying breaks the power of death itself. The book of Hebrews tells us that in dying, by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone. It goes on to say that his death breaks the power of the devil and set free those who were once enslaved to the fear of death for their entire lives. Hallelujah! Our chains are gone. That is something to celebrate. And since you and I are flesh and blood, God himself became flesh and blood in the person of Jesus. But unlike you and me, Jesus lives an unblemished and perfect life. He himself is innocent when he is nailed to the cross, even more innocent than the victims of Herod that we read about today. In his suffering, Jesus experiences all of what it means to be human and is one with humanity. He is one with the people who he makes holy. And he is unashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He is unafraid to die for us, for those who are yet sinners, and to pay that wage on our behalf. He is the one whose blood makes atonement for our sins. And he is the one who died so that eternal life may be given to all who follow him. And this is because of the incarnation. To a follower of Jesus, then, death takes on a different meaning. We are all mortal. And unless we happen to be on this side of the dirt when Jesus comes back, every one of us will one day die. Now, even for people who believe in Jesus, death remains significant. And quite honestly, uh, calling it significant is putting it a little too lightly. Grief remains a reality for those whose loved ones die. Questions about what's next often come to those who are dying themselves. Our own death brings with it a finality that we experience only once in our lives. And like many things in life, we don't know for sure what it will be like until we are in the middle of it. And from my work as a chaplain, I can tell you that I haven't met two people whose deaths are exactly the same. And I have not met two families who grieve in exactly the same way. So there will always be a few questions in that regard until we finally get there. Now I do sometimes talk, or I sometimes hear people talk about grief, or they talk about their questions as though they're things to be ashamed of. And I want to tell you right here that they are not. There's this idea floating around that uh, these things, grief and questions, they somehow uh, signify a weak faith. That somehow grief and angst are markers that we're not yet fully on board with Jesus. It's this idea that Jesus has set us free from the fear of death, so therefore we need to celebrate it. And if celebration works for you, then I, I really am glad. I'm glad that you found a way to cope. But if you're just not up for celebrating, that's fine too. 
even if we believe in Jesus and the eternal life, there is something about death that still gives us pause. It is, to say the least, an undesired interruption to life as we know it. It makes our human limitations undeniably evident. And I think it brings the tension between this world and the next to the forefront of our existence. Even though Jesus has already defeated death, our human act of dying reminds us how desperately we need Jesus to do this in the first place. We need Jesus because it is only through his act of perfect surrender, perfect sacrifice, that we are forgiven. And in another counterintuitive act, God invites us to participate in Jesus' death as a way of life. The book of Romans talks about being baptized into Christ's death. That through our baptism, our old self dies, and our new self is raised from the dead by the glory of God. That is to say that who we were before Jesus enters our life is no more. That person was crucified along with Jesus. It used to be that we lived in sin, but through the work of Jesus' death, we can be dead to sin and alive in Christ, free from sin's confines. We are again invited to participate in the death of Jesus by partaking in the Lord's Supper. When Jesus was with his disciples on the night before he was executed, he broke bread and drank wine and told them that his blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Later, Paul would elaborate on this, saying that every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. After examining our hearts and offering our humble confession to the Lord, we are again and again invited to proclaim the Lord's death. We are invited again and again to say, Yes, I believe that the Lord died. Yes, I believe that the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world. Yes, I believe that He is returning. When we receive communion, we are coming together as a community of believers. We are the physical manifestation. We are the incarnate manifestation of the body of Christ on this earth. And we act in humble submission. Again and again, we proclaim the Lord's death. And in so doing, we see that our old selves have been crucified with him. And we are alive again in Jesus. So death for a Christian, it means something different than it does to the powerful. Death is not an instrument of fear the way that Herod or Caesar or some of our current leaders use it. Death instead is an instrument of grace. Jesus dies, 
And he dies not to instill fear in others, but to cleanse the world of its sin. And by participating in the Lord's death, we are freed from that nagging fear of death. Liberated and set apart to say that Jesus is Lord and fear is not. Thanks be to God.